Maz Evans burst onto the children's book scene with her debut book, Who Let the Gods Out, an uproarious story in which the lofty Greek gods come down from the heights of Mount Olympus to earth with a bump. This was followed by three books, Simply the Quest, Beyond the Odyssey and Against All Gods. Now Maz has written the first book in a new series by Spy and fans will be delighted that it has all the characteristic humour, a fast moving plot and the capacity to address important themes while keeping us entertained. It's great to be welcoming Maz today to throw some light onto the background of this new book. Introduce us to, to this story. It's a funny thing coming to your second series. It's a bit like doing your second book all over again, because uh, I you know, I still, to this day, it overwhelms me the response that Who Let the Gods Out has had. And, and so many people really took Elliot and Virgo and that story to their hearts, which is wonderful, but really quite difficult to, to kind of follow up. And it was quite tempting to, to do something like that again. But actually, I really did want to do something different. And so I sort of you know, cast around for other things that, as a child, I really 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 loved and it didn't take me long to hit on the world of spies because I used to watch spy films with my dad we used to cuddle up and watch James Bond and he used to put his hands over my eyes for all the naughty bits and I loved spy things and I think when you're sort of trying to make a, a genre humorous you need to do it from a place of loving it very much so you know I never wanted to take the mick out of Greek mythology I don't want to take the mick out of the spy genre so but it does enable you to play with the conventions a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and just like gods was a, a combination of, of something I loved which was Greek mythology and something which had happened to me which was watching um, particularly my maternal grandmother go through dementia this was born from something I love, which is the world of spies, but actually an experience that has permeated my life at various points, which is that of divorce, uh, because my parents got divorced and uh, I got divorced three years ago. And yeah, I'm very lucky. I have the world's most stupidly amicable divorce. But, you know, it was obviously incredibly tough on us as a family. And, and of course, you realise just how many families are touched by divorce. And whereas Elliot and the young carer side of life was something I wanted to open children's and adults' eyes to this kind of slightly unseen sector of, of humanity that are doing this heroic, wonderful thing under really difficult circumstances. With Vi, I kind of wanted to talk about a situation that loads of people experience and, and really say to kids, I know it is tough, but it does get better. I promise you it gets better. And yeah, that was important to me to kind of kind of reach out a bit of a, a, a torch to kids who are perhaps going through it and say, I promise you it's, you know, it's okay and put it in a, obviously a heightened silly way, but uh, in a way that, that people I hope will, will be able to relate to. Tell us about... Uh, or introduce us to the story itself. Yes, so Vi is Valentine Day, uh, an 11-year-old girl who lives with her mum Easter Day and her gran Indy Day, Independence Day. And uh, Vi, right from the get-go in the bit I'll read you shortly, is pretty convinced her mum was a spy uh, because spies are rubbish at keeping secrets, as we discover. And she challenges her mum very early on because there's a, you know, some pretty major clues that her mum had a different life. And, and her mum being unable to keep the secret kind of you know, spills pretty easily that indeed, yes, she used to be a super spy. But once Valentine was born, once Vi was born, uh, as is often the case, of course, she completely changed and became super overprotective and was quite determined that you know, nothing would befall her precious little baby. So Easter has been you know massively a very lovingly but very overprotective towards her daughter for 11 years 
And as far as Valentine is aware, her father was also a spy who was killed in the line of duty defusing a nuclear missile in space, which, as everybody points out, is exactly what he would have wanted. Uh, So Vi's never known her father and hasn't been particularly curious about him. But mum is about to remarry uh, at the point at which we, we meet her. She's about to marry George Sprout, the lovely, very mild-mannered George Sprout, who also happens to be Vi's form teacher, which, of course, is going down like a bucket of cold sick with Vi, not least because George brings with him his son, Russell. So Vi is about to become the stepsister to Russell Sprout, who is the school's robot crazy uber geek. So Vi's not, not mad about all of this, but but things take a little bit of a stranger turn when on mum's wedding day, there is a lawful objection uh, made by somebody at the wedding. I shan't give it away. Uh, who points out that Easter is not in a position to get married because she is still married. And this comes as news to everybody, Vi and George particularly, although not so to Easter, because, of course, she is the only one in the room who is painfully aware that not only did Vi's dad never die, uh, not only was he never a spy who died in a nuclear missile explosion, he was, in fact, the world's second biggest supervillain, Robert Ford, known as Surcharge. Uh, And strangely enough, a union between a super spy and a supervillain did not last terribly long. Uh, And when they went their separate ways for Vi's own protection, uh, Robert has stayed away. But uh, he is now back. He says he's turned over a new leaf. He wants a relationship with a daughter he didn't know. And just on a small technicality, he and Easter never got divorced. So uh, if she wants to have a happy ever after with George Sprout, uh, she's going to need to let him see Vi. And of course, it raises questions that is he really a goodie? Has he really turned over a new leaf? Uh, There is no love lost between him and Easter whatsoever. So Vi finds herself caught between these two divorcing parents uh, whilst she herself is trying to save the world and prove her own credentials as a spy to prove to her mum that she can do it. Wow, I've got to give you 10 out of 10. What an amazing and comprehensive introduction without giving away anything. Oh my, thank you very much. That's amazing. <laughs> and just before you do read to us, I want to say you are the queen of naming your character. I mean, Russell Sprout is, is brilliant. Independence Day. I would just love to call somebody Independence Day. Surcharge was another favourite. And misdirection. I like direction. Who's the head of Rivington Hall uh, espionage? I always, in all the books I write, teachers get very bizarre names. I love teachers. It's not done personally, but yes, they all seem to get rather odd names in my world. Can we hear a bit of the story? Of course you may. I think with with a new book, rather than dive in and have to give you loads of explanation, I will start at the beginning. So you've got a little bit of the setup. So I'm going to read you from the very, very opening uh, of my book, which rather brilliantly I called Chapter One. Spies are rubbish at keeping secrets. Not your big, it's a matter of state security secrets. Obviously, they have to be good with those. After all, they wouldn't be much of a spy if they posted a selfie on Twitter while parachuting into a top secret enemy lair. Hashtag, it's under the volcano. (laughs) No, the big stuff is safe. You have to protect the code to the Prime Minister's chocolate safe. Go ahead and tell a spy. You need to hide the world's first laser-guided intercontinental water pistol. A spy will know just the place. You've discovered that brain-sucking aliens are invading Surbiton. A spy will take that information to their grave, and hopefully to Surbiton. But personal secrets? Forget it. If you're organising a surprise party, say nothing to a spy. 
There will be undiscovered species in the Amazonian rainforests will turn up on Tuesday with sausages on sticks. You mustn't tell a spy your suspicions about that lady from the corner shop. There'll be a SWAT team trained on her pick and mix before you can say, on her brow. And don't ever ask a spy to keep that funny thing about your mum quiet. Imagine mum's face when she sees her pink leopard print knickers on the six o'clock news. It's true. Spies are rubbish with secrets. And no one knew this better than Valentine Day. Valentine's mum was a spy. Valentine knew this because, like all spies, her mum was rubbish at keeping it a secret. There was the time her mum got Arthur Tilsley's dad arrested at the PTA casino night because she was convinced he was concealing dynamite in a bin. It was actually his wife's disgusting sausage rolls. All the time she trained next door's dog to sniff out explosives and it attacked Fred the postman for delivering sparklers to number 12's bonfire party. All the time she abseiled from the top of the supermarket multi-story to catch the last post, which was actually incredibly cool. Yes, Valentine was convinced her mum was a spy. And on an unremarkable Friday in her unremarkable home, in her unremarkable town, Valentine Day was determined to prove it. Let's talk about spies first. You've mentioned watching films with your with your dad and James Bond and right from the off with the title License to Chill. We know that we're in James Bond territory here. What was it that you really loved about spy movies? Yeah, well, I think it's I mean, like all stories are things that you love are the same, really gripping characters, gripping plot. And I have a very low attention span because I get bored. I think it's one of the strengths I have as a children's writer because I have far less of attention span than your average eight year old child. So if it's boring me, I will assume it's going to bore them. And spy films, they're packed with pacey plot. And I really, really like that about them. You know, they usually start with some either ridiculous plot or massive explosion or really big car chase. And I love that because I'm in and I'm there. Um, I love all the gadgets. I love the cars. I love the imagination that goes into this stuff. And what's funny is when you see how much real tech was born out of made up spy tech. Uh, and the, the joy of writing is because you can make up anything you want. Well, it, you're often quite restricted as a writer that you can't you can't say something would happen if it didn't. But in this world, if I need something that, you know, turns spaghetti into camels, then I just, I can invent it. And I love that. It's such a fun world to play in. And of course, there are so many tropes and so many things that you can take the, the rise out of. But also, I think it's comforting for people in genre fiction. They kind of know what to expect and you, you can play with that. But also like with detective fiction or crime fiction, people know what's coming. And I, I think that's quite nice that you probably know it's going to work out OK and, and the things that are going to happen on the way. And it's, it's just been joyful to play with it. I really enjoyed it. I think that enjoyment actually comes off the page. And Russell Sprout is a sort of junior Q, isn't he? Absolutely. He's, uh, yes. he's brilliant. And I think also with those Bond films, there was a sort of humorous approach to them I'm thinking about the Roger Moore years yes yeah absolutely played with a bit of humor there yes absolutely and I and I think that's important I mean it's quite funny because when I first tried to get who let the gods out published unsuccessfully I must say the big feedback was you can't mix these serious things with humor you know that can't be done kids won't be able to cope with that emotional range and I really did argue with kids 
constantly flip the dial from one end to the other. If anyone can deal with a big emotional range, it's children. And even in, I think particularly to British sensibilities, even in our darkest moments, it's humour that gets us through and, and having a bit of a laugh about it. I think it was Roald Dahl who said that, that laughter is delayed fear. And I think it's, you know, how we make sense of the things. And as I said about the Bond films, they were dealing with things people were genuinely terrified about, about, you know, entering World War Three and the, and the nuclear threat. And now we do worry about the liberties that will be eroded if anyone ever gets hold of kind of the cyber world. So they do reflect kind of contemporary concerns. And the, the big worry in Vi, the big weapon uh, that threatens everyone, is this thing called the Neurotrol, which has the ability to manipulate brainwaves to do whatever who, whoever's in command of the Neurotrol can do. I, I feel hopefully it's quite a contemporary sort of thing to be worried about. I didn't want to make an enemy of another country or make a worry about terrorism in, in the way that is horrible for children, but make them think about actually how terrifying that would be if somebody could control your mind and make you do whatever they say you know that's a really scary threat and of course as I researched it this is something that people are looking at it's not completely you know made up there are people looking at neuroterror as a it is an actual thing but don't worry, kids, because Maz Evans has made it funny. So. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, at one point, the Neurotrol finds its way into the parents' um, PTA disco, which means that all the parents are controlled by whatever the 70s song is playing at the time. And so when everybody is kung fu fighting, uh, this starts to cause trouble, as does the song Honesty, when everyone starts telling everyone exactly what they think about one another. Uh, so, yes, the Neurotrol in the, in the wrong hand could do a lot of damage not least at a PTA 70s disco. Brilliant. I do want to talk a little bit more about humour. I think it's changing but I think for a long time it's been seen as uh, the trivial side of children's literature Mm. but actually there's a real skill in writing humour. All really we want to do as writers of anything is, is, is provoke an emotion And that's what I'm doing as a comedy writer. I'm provoking an emotion. I'm making you laugh. Yet for some reason, that emotion is perceived as easier or less important or more trivial or or sillier than making someone cry, which is also just provoking an emotion or making somebody think that provokes an emotion. And it drives me absolutely berserk that, you know, you ask anyone who writes serious drama to write a comedy and they will come out in boils, I mean, with fear, because it is so hard to do. And kids who rock my world are also the toughest audience because a child will let you know in no uncertain terms if they do not find something funny. And there's nothing worse than if you're trying to be funny and it's not. So there are so many pitfalls with comedy. And what I find very difficult is if if somebody reads a, a sort of dramatic book and they don't like it, they're more likely to say it's not my sort of thing. Whereas if they read a comedy book and they don't like it, they're more likely to say it's a bad book. And it's not it's a bad book. It's just not your sense of humour but we are rated as as sort of the quality of our writing rather than actually the response from our reader and comedy books are constantly overlooked at awards yet they're not reviewed in the same way people write them off as very dismissive but you look at actually what a lot of comedy books deal with you know who let the gods out is a story of a young boy dealing with his mother who has early onset dementia you know that's not that funny actually you look at the miraculous journey of freddie yates has just come out that's dealing with with grief and trying to find your biological father and it's got some, and friendship and identity and massive issues wrapped up in this gloriously funny story 
story. Uh, you look at everything. Um, Charlie changes into a chicken by Sam Copeland. It deals with anxiety and it deals with, you know, family separation and breakup and what happens when your family run into hard financial times. You know, all these comedy books deal with, with massive, massive issues, but yet are not taken as seriously. And yet, and yet, and yet, any survey ever of children's reading habits and what children like to read, humour is always right at the top. What I would like to ask you, you you said if you try to be funny, it doesn't work. Does it just in that case flow or do you have to go back and think about timing and all of those sorts of issues when you're editing? I'm really geeky about comedy, you see, because it is a bit scientific. And so I sort of think about the anatomy of my jokes very carefully, because as you say, you need lots of different humour. So there's just, there's silly words, which we discussed. Uh, There's dialogue. So people having, you know, sparky dialogue between each other. There's situation set pieces. So something like a a PTA disco where everybody has to do what the song is telling them to do. There's uh, character comedy. So when you have characters and you expect them to behave a certain way and the more they behave that way the funnier it gets or then they don't behave that way and and that's funny too there's so many different types of comedy and I often put things in my book that I don't find funny at all but I know that someone will because I know that the anatomy of the joke is correct so quite often I will do the end point first and I'll reverse engineer it. So I'll think of uh, the PTA disco would be a good example. I thought, wouldn't it be funny if you played a song, everybody is Kung Fu fighting and they all start Kung Fu fighting. So then I work back to how that situation might arise. But then sometimes I say that I can geek it out all day long. I tend to find the more I work at something, the less funny it becomes, you know, unless it's got that spark of humour. But then every now and again, you you get a sort of moment. So the character Siren in this book, uh, who is one of the... uh, uh, ex-villain improvement league members which is a support group for super villains who are trying to go straight and siren arrives in this group very early on and um siren is a femme fatale which means because when i was researching super villains there are very few female super villains actually most of them are men and the ones that are a sort of a certain type of woman they're sort of very pretty and you know they're very sort of they're always dressed in tight cat suits and and it's quite objectifying so i thought it'd be quite funny to have a woman like that who is also a mastermind champion, but has the worst, most open attitude to her bodily hygiene you could possibly imagine. So she's standing there looking absolutely gorgeous and then let's rip the most disgusting fart that clears the room. And that just occurred to me in a moment and it made me laugh. And every single time I write Siren, and I've been delighted even in the short period on the book's been out, that every single review has mentioned Siren because she just, I mean, you think you've had it now, it makes me laugh. She just, and then it naturally comes to me whatever she's going to say next and that isn't something I can plan or work I just know that that's a really funny idea and every time she comes up she does something else that's funny so it's, it's a combination of, of inspiration and perspiration as all writing is but it, it is a craft and it is it doesn't all just land on the page and people say you've got funny bones or you don't but I'm not sure it's as simple as that. We've already said a little bit about funny stories dealing with serious issues and here we've got a family navigating divorce. Uh, There was one bit that I read where you talked about from Austin to Zara. Um, I love that, that A to Z of what it's like to be a child um, with parents that are going through this process. Um, I wonder whether we could talk a little bit about the writing of this book at this time you've been writing through lockdown yeah um I wondered if that was an easier or more difficult process for you 
Well, interestingly, this was one of my lockdown books. This was the first one I wrote. I wrote about a year ago. And it was it was fascinating for me because um, I've been on the road a lot, as you know, the, the whole time I was writing Who Let the Gods Out, because those four books came out in two years. So I was on the road and I was writing. And that was really hard because it was really hard to find the focus when you're sitting on a train or you're in a hotel room. Or I was, this is honestly the first book I've written sitting at home. And it was lovely. It was so nice. It was really interesting. And I think writers really went one of two ways with with lockdown writing. They either, like me, saw it as a massive opportunity to kind of, you know, really focus in and write, or they found it really hard. But it's really given me time to focus. And I'm actually writing Vibe 2 at the moment, the sequel to this book. And I really, really enjoy that. I've actually written five books in lockdown. So I've got another series coming out later this year for younger readers. Uh, And I've had really the opportunity to focus on my writing, which has been lovely. But I also have no excuses. I did notice uh, towards the end of the story, when you're talking about doing exams by Zoom, I thought probably that wouldn't have even appeared in there if you hadn't Zoom been- was something that Roadrunner did a year ago. I mean, none of us had heard of Zoom. I mean, that was Zoom was that we live on Zoom. And I did funny, but I put that in because, I mean, how to deal with the pandemic as a children's writer is very interesting. And there are lots of conversations going, do we include it? Because obviously it's been a massive experience for us all. And in my world, it, this the world of these books, it doesn't exist. But it'll be interesting to, interesting to see what children's literature does with it going forward, because of course, as writers do, they reflect the age in which we live. And this has been a massive experience for children particularly. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see, see what comes of it. Just one final question. Do you think that there are ways of connecting with your audience? As you're somebody for whom the audience is really, your readers, is really important and connecting with them. Has this period kind of changed how you might do that going forward? I mean, that has been really hard. And I mean, normally you get to tell teachers and get to tell kids and get to tell parents about your book. And I haven't been able to do that. I've done a lot of things online, a lot of virtual visits. But of course, you tend to be dealing with much smaller numbers of people in those. And actually, I've had to stop doing them because I have I literally have no time for anything that isn't writing or, or helping my kids with their homeschooling at the moment. Um, but But what has been nice about that is schools that perhaps can't or wouldn't normally access an author visit. They can chat to you via Zoom. And it's something I will definitely keep on because you know, on a very, I'm afraid, boring money level, it's a lot cheaper for schools. But also, again, it's nice for me. I don't have to travel. I can be at home and still pick up my kids from school and, and all the things that are important to me as a mum. But you also get, it's really nice to just talk to a class of 30 people because you can have a real bond and a real rapport. And, and that's been really nice. And like many things in lockdown, there are bits of it I will you know keep going forward because it's something I I didn't I never bothered doing virtual visits before because I did so many physical ones but I'll certainly keep it on and and there's you know accessibility things with virtual visits that people perhaps can't get to events for, for whatever reason you can kind of you know work with them but it is much there's no getting around it it's so much harder to connect with my readers and I cannot wait to to get back out and be able to see people in in person again. Maz, thank you so much for connecting with us today in the reading corner. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so, so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.